0: Another day, another dollar, makes you wonder where your money went, you can't scream. Hi you folks, it's Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is almost always the case during my 50 mile commute between Arlington And Frisco, Texas, in the 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI, also known as the Personal Mobile Studio. Uh, So if you've not tuned in before, or if you only tuned in yesterday when I was podcasting from the house, and you're thinking, it sounds like that dude's in a car, it's because that dude's in a car. Today is episode 319 of the Survival Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about modern survival philosophy as a whole, the overriding concepts by which I do this show, develop material for. It, um, build a community around it. Everything that I do on a daily basis, where that comes from, what the rooting is, the uh, the modern survival manifesto, if you want to call it that. I don't want to call it that because then people freak out and start thinking you're talking like the Unabomber or something like that. And God knows we get enough extremism, you know, stigma as it is. But I think if you listen to today's show, if you haven't heard this concept before, you'll realize how grounded down to earth and logical. The things that we do really are. All right. Um, before that, though, let's knock out some housekeeping. Number one, let me tell you what the weather's like today. Uh, it's not normal housekeeping, but I thought you'd enjoy hearing it once in a while, because that's what friends do. We talk about the weather. 47 degrees, crystal clear blue skies, cold overnight down into the upper 30s. Trying to take out the last of my summer crops, but they made it through last night. Um, it's uh, finally cold in North Texas, and uh, I say bring it on. I'm ready for it. It's time to break the, uh, the, the somewhat even when it's been nice out recently in the 70s and the 80s, it's been humid and, and gross, and this cool weather feels good. Makes me want to get out in the deer woods. Uh, with that knocked out, let's talk about our sponsors. We have two sponsors of the day today. One is MERS-radio.com. M-U-R-S-radio.com. M-U-R-S-radio.com. Really great way to extend your communications at the local and family level. No license needed and some really cool security options as well, uh, which includes some remote sensors that can be placed out on your property, which will actually, the sensor will motion detect and radio you when something's going on in the area you've set it up for. That's a really cool additional feature. I don't of another easy way to do that at this cost. So I thought it'd be something I'd let you guys know about today. So check out MERS-Radio.com. Uh, next uh, sponsor of the day is Safe Castle Royal. Uh, everything you can imagine and need for the prepper in the world is there at Safe Castle, from food storage to solar appliances, you name it. They also have a great discount membership uh, club, $29 a year, and you get discounts for the rest of your life on everything you ever buy from them. In a second, I'll tell you you how to get that $29 membership for free. Uh, next, make sure you get involved with our forum. Join our forum. Be involved with our forum. Uh, we want you there. I'll get throwing something out today. I'm going to do some listener contests around the forum in the coming weeks. Right now, we're about 50 people away from 4,000 forum members. When we hit 4,000 forum members, I'm going to do a drawing. And I'm going to pick two forum members to get a free membership for a year to the Member Support Brigade. Two forum members will get a free MSB membership. Not the 4,000th member, two at random out of everybody. If you already have an MSB membership, you can gift it to somebody else, or you can say, just pick another winner. So the only way you're going to win the free MSB, uh, probably by the end of this week I'll be giving it out, is to first be a forum member. So if you're not on the forum and you want to play for the uh, the next... Uh, 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 listener contest, you gotta join the forum this time. Alright, with that, let's talk about the MSB real quick. If you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the member support brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, I'll leave it at that today. It's really cool though. Check it out over $100 worth of value, uh, for a $50 annual membership. And that's from day one and I will keep adding to the value folks. I promise you that. Um, Right before we go into the main topic today, i got to remind you again, remember, we are nominated for the Podcast Awards uh, in the general category for Podcast of the Year. Please go to podcastawards.com, scroll down to the general category, click the little tick box next to the Survival Podcast, fill out your name and email and vote. Please use your real email and click the confirming email they will send you. If you don't do that, your vote won't count. Uh, like the progressives say, vote early, vote vote often you can vote once a day between now and i believe the end of the year uh, we have an advantage over most of our competitors. Most competitors do one or two shows a uh, a week. We do one show a day. I will remind you every day, but set your outlook reminder. Do something so you remember to vote for us every day. Uh, winning will be good for us all. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, again, when I started the Survival Podcast, I had to sit back and I had to evaluate what I was doing. And I had to decide, was I i just messing around uh was i just going to go out and rant off a few times about politics and preparations and economics and scream and yell for people to get out of the stock market and i was going to do some of those things but was that all i was going to do or did i want to be there a year later two years later ten years later dare i say 20 years later still helping people and I decided I wanted to be there for the long haul, that I had seen so many uh, podcasts on preparedness, and so many podcasts and so many subjects that had gone away. But when it came to preparedness, I said, you know, there's a, there's a huge group of people out there that are looking for advice and input, and they're looking for a voice, they want a community, um, they want something more than is there, why don't these things last, why don't they stick around? And I thought, you know, the problem isn't so much just the podcaster, uh, it is the... the the prepper themselves Uh, the prepper that comes and goes the the day to day uh, one day I'm an ostrich the next day I'm an ant prepper the prepper that was asleep in a slumber And then all of a sudden Y2K was going to kill us all So they woke up And they went out and bought a bunch of uh, freeze-dried food And a generator And then Y2K came And they felt foolish for spending so much money so fast And they, they, they realized that they had made mistakes And they had gone too fast And that they had overreacted And all the people that told them they were overreacting And crazy started to sound like maybe they were smarter than, than, you know, than the prepper And they would just fall out and I realized that throughout history there's been disasters that have motivated people to do something in their lives. And sometimes they've motivated them to talk about it. Sometimes they've motivated them to actually do something. But in general, I would bet, bet that 8 to 9 out of 10 eventually stop doing anything at all to be prepared. No matter how, um, how much they did initially when they woke up, they fall out. In fact, the more they did initially, often the harder they would fall out. The bigger the bubble, the bigger the pop, so to speak. So, the guy that really freaked out, that bought 10 years' worth of food, three backup generators, stockpiled 500 gallons of fuel, um, you know, put up a security system around his house, the guy that went way overboard for Y2K, that guy probably has nothing to do with the preparedness industry anymore and with the preparedness community anymore. Especially if he hadn't done anything up till that point. So, the, the faster the rise. So, I needed to set up a philosophy that would guide people to a lifestyle. Not just an acute reaction. And I needed to, to tell people the most important factor you can when you're trying to get them to do anything or buy into anything or support anything or be part of anything. I had to answer the question, what's in it for me? And I don't mean me, I mean you, right? The prepper had to sit back and look at what I was doing and say, well, what do I get out of this? How does it, you know, if nothing ever goes wrong, how does this help me? And I said, that's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's That's the foundational principle. Everything that we're going to talk about, everything that we're going to do, every preparation that we're going to make is going to follow that from day one. Everything we do will benefit our lives, even if nothing ever goes wrong. And I started looking at common preps, and I realized that almost all of them fit into that already. I didn't have to change anything, I just had to change the message and the philosophy behind it, and I had to change the the mentality of the person coming into the lifestyle. Because most people that come into this world, come into it in a panic. They freak out. One day they wake up and they look around and they realize, holy crap, the United States is 100 113 trillion dollars in debt the currency cannot last hurricanes and tornadoes happen all the time and clearly fema is completely and totally incompetent and in, 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 in the best case and in the worst case they actually seem nefarious oh my god there's wars everywhere in the world i've never really paid attention to this stuff before oh my god we're electing socialists into our government Oh, my God, fill in the blank. And often there's two or three blanks that motivate the single individual. So they get all worried that something is imminent, something is about to occur, and then they react to that acutely. And then the timeline for those events passes, or whatever happens just doesn't really affect them, and they go away. Because all they did was spend a bunch of money and worry a lot. So that formula had to be broken, it had to be destroyed, it had to be done away with, and I was going to do it, and I was going to do it on that foundational principle. Preparedness would be, from this point forward, at least if you were listening to me about it, you do not take an action unless it improves your life. I think you say to me, Jack, well, what about a bug out pack How's a bug out outback improve my life even if nothing goes wrong? Well, having enough stuff with you to take care of yourself for 72 hours gives you confidence. You feel better. It doesn't cost that much. Honestly, uh, as long as you rotate food throughout it, you're going to eat the food that's in there anyway. The rest of the stuff is an old pair of clothes and some gear. It's camping gear you can use when you go camping. If you camp, if you don't, oh, well, it's a little bit of an investment. It's stuff you have that can take care of you when something goes wrong, but it'll help you with day-to-day emergencies. I've said it before. I've been at people's houses, around their backyard, having a barbecue or something. Everybody's getting bit by mosquitoes. If I didn't carry a bug-out bag and if insect repellent wasn't in there, it damn near ruined the day. Nobody wants to be bit by mosquitoes. It's a terrible experience, especially for little kids. Nobody wants to stop in the middle of a barbecue and run out to a store, and some of my friends don't prepare so they don't have any insect repellent that's just one example i've heard countless stories of little small everyday inconveniences and little tiny emergencies that nobody was going to die over that bug out bags have bailed people out of and that's the only one i've been challenged on when i've said everything we do improves our life even if nothing goes wrong store food fine we end up paying less for our food i'll talk about that in a bit Own some gold, own some silver, we diversify our investments. Plenty of people that aren't preppers own gold and silver because it's a good thing to do from an investment standpoint. Know how to defend yourself? Fine. Then you're more confident, you live a more confident lifestyle. something goes wrong, you're ready to do that, but if if you never have anything go wrong, you walk through life more confidently. On and on and on it goes, as long as we don't go too fast. As long as we put a methodical plan in place and slowly work it, we'll never violate that rule. So when people are taking action, Actions that are improving their life even if nothing goes wrong they don't fall out they don't go away they listen to this show for a year they work on their life for a year and a year later they have a better life and because of that they're going to be prepared if something goes wrong and the more people we have that are prepared for the disasters the better we'll handle them because this is the one thing you have got to understand you've got to understand this this is, this is critical When we have a disaster, the disaster is generally short in duration, the actual event. Once you get through the event and you're not dead, the disaster is generally not individually the problem. It is the aftermath and, more importantly, the reaction of people around you. In New Orleans, the hurricane lasted a day and a half, the actual effects. And the flood lasted for a week the violence the looting the way the people panicked the incompetence of the people who were supposed to help and I don't mean the people that showed up ready to help I mean the government guiding that lasted a hell of a lot longer than a disaster and the dangers there once the storm passed were the people around you that meant to do harm because they were scared and they thought they were in a situation where they had no other choice And that's something we always have to understand. The disaster is seldom as bad as the reaction of people around you to it. Next, as I was putting this philosophy together, I said, I have to look at the, if I'm going to talk about disasters, I have to look at what is the thing that destroys more people's lives in my nation than any other thing? Is it hurricanes? No. Is it New World Order conspiracies? No. Is it socialist governments? No, at least not yet. Is it, I don't know, solar flares, EMP, nuclear bombs, terrorist activity? No. Weather events of any kind? No. What was the one thing that was destroying people's lives and destroying families more than anything else? And the answer was simple for me. It was debt. Debt was the destroyer. Debt was the great evil. And I thought about it and I determined that debt was financial cancer. It must be eliminated. It must be looked at in your life when you have it. You have debt in your life. It is a tumor. You take radical action to destroy tumors. Because if you don't, they will kill you. And when I say it's cancer, people go, Jack, Jack, it's that's a bit extreme. Debt's cancer. Well... Look at two people, 35 years of age, first big job, couple kids, Dave and Tom. Dave and Tom both have six-figure jobs. They make a lot of money. They worked really hard, graduated college at 25, uh, got master's degrees, uh, the whole nine yards. Worked for 10 years, finally moved up into senior management positions, 35, and really living that yuppie lifestyle. Dave... Worked his way through school, carried no student debt. Tom, 35, still carrying student loan debt. Both of them are married at this point, have a couple kids. One lives on credit cards, home equity loans, keeps buying bigger and bigger houses, always moving up. The other one lives modestly in a house within their means and makes a determination, you know what, we're not going to have debt in our lives in consumer goods. We're not going to use credit cards. We make enough money, and what we don't have money for, we won't buy. The only debt we're going to carry is a mortgage. For the next 10 years, we're going to make double or triple payments on our mortgage. (laughs) We're going to pay off our house in 10 years or less. At 45, the person that lived within their means looks less financially healthy than the person outside of their means. It's not driving a Mercedes and a Lexus SUV. Kids are not every activity under the sun, not living in a multi-million dollar house that they can't afford. They have a modest house, but it's paid for. They have modest vehicles, but they're paid for. Their kids do activities that make sense, that they can afford. And they have a huge nest egg of cash and investments. And They're living a solid lifestyle, but they don't look wealthy. They probably have more money than anybody else in whatever neighborhood they've actually chosen to live in because most of their neighbors are living a life based on debt and are living at the edge of what they can afford, and the other family's living well within what they can afford. Now, what about our cancer family, our family living on debt? By now, they probably have more debt than they'll ever be able to pay off. Mom has sat down and realized how bad her spending is. She's looked at at the uh, financial statements and realize that in 20 years if they keep doing everything they are they're not just going to be still in debt they're going to be in more debt than they are now and they're going to be retired at 65 but they're not going to retire because they're going to have to keep working until they're 85 to make enough money to pay off the debt and live until they die and then stress comes in and destroys the family but for 10 years, while they were living that high life, everybody around them thought they were healthy. They thought they were doing better than everybody else. They said, wow, look at Tom, man. He is rocking. Look at, he's getting promoted. They bought another big house. Wow! Isn't that all great? The economy takes a dump and Tom loses his job. And then we go from slow-growing cancer to quickly metastasizing cancer that destroys their lives. The similarities between the way debt destroys lives and families and the way cancer kills a person are so eerie. They should scare the hell out of you. They should send a shiver up your back. If you're sitting on twenty, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 in debt or $5,000 in debt, it's a tumor. Just how big is the tumor? When you start treating a tumor? As soon as you find it. If you have debt in your life, get rid of it. The only debt I'm comfortable with anymore is a house debt. And you be smart about your house debt. You make sure if you lose your job, you can pay for your house for at least six months. Or don't buy a house yet. You're not ready. Follow those rules. You'll pay that house off in seven to ten years. You won't owe a penny on it. You'd be surprised how much money you would have if you didn't have a MasterCard debt and a car debt and a this debt and a that debt. So debt is cancer. It's got to go. The next one is, I said, you know, all this storing food is great. It has a wonderful ability to hold back problems. That if something goes wrong, having food to put on the table for 90 days, six months, even maybe a year, I mean, that helps you in so many ways. The world doesn't have to end for that. If you have no debt, and you have a deep pantry full of food, and the only thing you have to pay is the mortgage on your house, or maybe that's even paid off already, and you have to keep the lights on, you have to keep the power on, and, and the basic utilities running, if that's all you have to do, if you lost your job, if your spouse lost her job on the same day, you can basically work at Seven Eleven and pull that off, especially if you don't have to put food on the table. And that gave you so much space and so much breathing room and so much time. There's wonderful things about food storage. But in the end... It's finite. You always have to work to earn money first, or you have to invest in risk to earn money first. You have to own a business. and One way or another, you had to give up either risk what you already had for a return or dedicate energy to get some form of currency with which to acquire food so that you can store it there was just a limit there and even if you had lots of money there was a finite level to how much you could store we all have a thing called spatial spatial constriction meaning that our house is only so big and we want so much of it for living and how much food are we going to store you know and unless we wanted to be an extremist and put a bunker in the ground that was designed to you know hold off nuclear radiation or something like that well there was a limit. There was a finite limit to food. Therefore, it was imperative that everybody that really concerned themselves with being prepared to live that better life become on some level a producer. And that meant growing your own food. And I looked around and I saw this organic you know, organic this and hippie that and you know, vegetarians and whatnot, and I said, you know, that's not what this is all about. So I came up with growing your own food is for everyone. Not just for hippies. I want men to understand that growing a garden is a manly activity. You know, I think some men have the stigma, you know. When I talk so much about gardening and permaculture, I always talk about the guy that asks me, am I going to teach him to make a cherry pie next? You know, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a, a wimpy topic. The toughest people I know in this country... Over the last 200 years, were the farmers that fed everybody. Farming is a tough lifestyle. Now, doing it on a small scale for yourself doesn't have to be anywhere near as tough. In fact, it's quite enjoyable. There's nothing not manly about growing your own food. It's one of the most manly things that we can do. Agriculture is centric to human communities being able to exist. And then once you started growing your own food and producing, you started to make a dynamic change in the way that we live our lives today in this modern, crazy-ass world. I realized that, you know what? Most people live their entire lives where their house is a consumer. It consumes money, energy, and time, and maintenance. They work and they spend half of their income, some people, or more, to provide for their home. A home was supposed to provide for us. That was the meaning of having a homestead back in the old days, the old homesteading days. And that if you started producing your own food, you were taking that first step from turning your home from a consumer into a producer, so everybody needed to do it. So if you want to be a modern survivalist, you need to be producing some level of your own food. That can be planting fruit, nut trees, and grapevines. And doing a little bit of work and then harvesting over and over. It can be a, a kitchen garden. It could be an herb garden. If you're a patio owner, uh, apartment gro- uh, owner, or an apartment renter, you could do it on your back porch. You could find a community garden. But some level, you needed to take control and produce, God, 5%, 10% of what you eat. It would sh- shift the dynamic in your mind. So that went on the list. The next one, I thought of, what's the biggest expense... In most people's lives that they have no control over. What's the biggest drain on your paycheck? Do you even know? What's the biggest drain on your lifestyle? It's tax. It's tax in various forms. It's income tax, which half of Americans no longer pay, and the other half of us have to pay their bills. But even the ones that don't pay the income tax are paying the Social Security tax, which is a huge scam, and it's taking money that they're never going to see again. Because the whole system has to go broke. It's already trillions and trillions and trillions in the hole. It won't be solvent for another 30 years. We don't know exactly when it's going to be going insolvent, but it will. And most people don't know that they're losing 15% on average of their income to Social Security. You look at your Social Security, got about 7%, 7.5%. You're right. But you know what? Your employer pays the same amount for you. They match what you pay. That means that if this month you look at your paycheck and $300 went to Social Security in your name, $600 went to Social Security in your name. Your boss, your company owner, your shareholders, whoever runs your company, had to pay an additional $300 to employ you that you never saw. They might as well pay it to you, and then you look at the check and see it be $600. That might make you a little more angry, but they didn't do it that way. Because do you think your employer is really paying that money? No, he's not. He factors it in when he hires you, when he negotiates a wage with you. Trust me, in my my main business, when I hire somebody and I agree to pay them a wage, I know what that wage costs me. And if I'm negotiating and the person wants more money, I have a cap. I can't go any higher. Or I have a, a limit that I'm willing to go for the person at their level. Well, if that Social Security burden wasn't there, I could go another 7% higher. That means a guy that I hire for, let's say, $50,000 a year initially, I could pay him fifty dollars From day one. And then every raise that goes on top of that increases from there. $3,000 a year doesn't sound like a lot of money. But over 20 years, that's $60,000 that could be invested in his life, his retirement, however he chooses. And I've rounded down there. Because there's another, what's... 10 grand there. $70,000. That's what it costs that $50,000 a year employee. In initial wages, because I can't afford to pay it, because I'm paying it to the government. Taxes, theft, state tax, is, is income tax, sales tax, property tax. All of it's theft. There's only so much you can do about it. But what my philosophy says is minimize it. Get a good accountant. Think about your purchases. Every time, the problem with tax is not just that it takes from you, but it builds dependence. Every time the government takes in a dollar in tax, they use it to create a system. The system creates greater dependence, and it entraps people further into the wheel. I'm going so far as to say, if you drink beer, consider making your own. Every time you make a batch of beer, and you put out about two and a half cases to a batch of beer, that's a sales tax and an alcohol tax that never gets paid. You're a smoker? I don't think you should smoke, especially cigarettes. You want a cigar or a pipe occasionally, I'm cool. Cigarettes terrible for you. But if you're going to do it, grow some tobacco. Learn how to do it. It's not hard. Number one tobacco-producing country in the world, as far as I know, is right here in the United States. Tobacco's easy to grow. One of the simplest things to grow in the United States. Huge cash crop in the United States. Not that hard to prepare. Well, every time you buy a pack of cigarettes, you're contributing 3 to $4 now, depending on where you live, to the government tax rolls. 3 to $4 you don't have, 3 to $4 that they have to impose systems of dependence upon us. So if you want independence, you have to break away from government systems of support. The only way to do that effectively is stop empowering them. So I'm not allocating anything illegal here, but I'm saying you do everything you can to minimize your tax consequences within the bounds of the law. Buy used stuff instead of new stuff. You'll pay less up front, you'll save money, and you avoid sales tax. One way or another, set up a business, create more deductions, minimize the tax impact in your life. That is part of modern survivalism. Because all the stuff we talk about, on some level, require money or time and effort. If it's money, you can see the direct... Uh, the direct relationship. You need money to put in a solar system. Uh, if you're not paying it to the government, you have more money to buy the solar system with. All right. Let's say that you need to do work, though. It's just a sweat equity job. You're gonna put very little money in, but a lot of time and energy into something, a sweat equity project. Well, all the debt. That you owe to our government in the form of tax makes you work harder. A lot of people, if they didn't have debt in their life, they didn't have huge tax burdens in their life, instead of working 40 hours a week, could work 30. Well, that's 10 hours a week. 500 hours a year that you can take back. It's not just about money. So it's important that we understand the impact and the consequences of both tax and debt. Without that it's hard to really get your head around what you're trying to accomplish. Because both of them create dependence, and what we're seeking here is healthy independence. Not 100% independence. But we don't want unhealthy dependence. We'll always, if we live a comfortable lifestyle, have some level of dependence. Even if you buy locally and you get your eggs from a local farmer, you're still dependent on him for your eggs. Right. even if you grow your own chickens and pick your own eggs, you're still dependent upon your chickens to lay. You're dependent on either somebody to provide you feed or your land to grow feed for you. There's always some level of interactivity with other human beings in your community. But it's the unhealthy dependence. The fact that everybody knows Social Security doesn't work. It's going to go broke. It's a failed program. It's absolutely failed. It's bankrupting the country. Can't get rid of it. Too many people depend on it. That's the only argument for not doing away with Social Security right now. Too many people are dependent upon it. That is the problem. There's a way out. There's a way to take people that are a certain age and say you get all your Social Security. There's a way to take people in an X age group and say you get a portion. There's a way to take people at the tail end of it and say you get a very small portion of it back. And there's a way to take our young workers coming into the system today, 18, 19, 20 years old, that are never going to get a dime. And have them buy their way out of it very short term. And by the time they're 23, 24 years old, be done with it. Social Security doesn't exist anymore. And we give people their money back. And within 10 years, 20 years at most, the program is completely 100% dead. But nobody wants to do it because we're told the lie that we need it. And every time we empower government, this new national health care system, it'll be the same way. We can fight it now. They get it passed 10 years from now. Oh, can't get rid of that. It's the way it works, folks. So we have to take control. The next one is let's talk about food storage. I looked at food storage and said, okay, this is the one that people get really weird about. People hear that, you know, how much food do you have? Well, we have 60 days in the house, at least four months at the bug out location. Plans to take the two months with us, uh, modularly packed if we have to. Wow, six months of food. Wow. Yeah, when we move up there permanently, we're going to extend it out to about a year. Wait, wait, I, you know, God, how, how could you need that much food? We don't need it today, but we need it over the next year. Ah, there it is. You're going to eat it anyway. And that I looked at the way that we purchased food, and I realized it was entirely different than the average American. We didn't make a grocery list every week based on what we ran out of. We made a grocery list based on what we were running low on. And then we went out, and if we, we would say, okay, well, we have uh, three weeks' worth of this. And if we went out and looked at that item, and that item wasn't on sale or it, for some reason it had a spike in price, we didn't buy it that week. And when we went back a week or two later... There would obviously be the opportunity for the price to come down. Maybe we found a coupon for it. We looked for them because of that. Uh, maybe the item was just uh, just a, a, you know, a, a price spike that had gone away. But we only bought things when we actually needed them, which was very infrequently, or when there was a good opportunity to buy them at a good price, and hence we were spending less money. On the other side of it, food was always going up in price. was part of the inflation curve. And because we had this massive amount of food stored up, we were mitigating the inflation. And I started to realize that food stored was a better investment than the stock market. In 2008, the average food prices went up about 17%, and the average stock market price went down about 65%. Then my money was safer in food than it was in something, you know, safe for the long term like a mutual fund. So food stored being an investment... Was something that I made a huge part of modern survival philosophy. It's something you have to understand. Because if you understand that food's an investment, all of a sudden the weird aspect of having two months or four months or six months worth of food in your home goes away. And then you also realize the convenience. How many times have you like this, I want to make this new recipe. And you open up the book and you go, God, don't have that. Gotta run out to the store, don't feel like it, I'll do this some other time. Or had people show up unexpectedly as company. Man, I'd like to put something together. If there's nothing I can cook quick, we're kind of all out of everything, the house is empty. Ever make statements like that? If so, you don't understand the, the convenience of having a well-stocked pantry at all times. You don't run out of food. There's a practicality there from the day-to-day life. It follows principle one. Makes your life better even if nothing goes wrong. There will always be little events in your life. Those That makes the, you know, the, the deep pantry nice to have. If we ever have a major shit hit the fan, it's like an insurance policy. Day-to-day, it saves you money. No downside. Solid investment. Way to look at it. That's being a modern survivalist. The next thing I said is, people are always talking about these Hollywood disasters. They become fixated on them. You know? The end of the world as we know it. The Mayans predicted the end of the world in 2012. If you believe that, folks, let me know which Craigslist you post to, because I'm going to be buying your stuff in January 2013. Because you're going to be selling all kinds of crap. You're buying into that kind of hysteria. What else? Y2K was a big one. Oh, Hurricane Katrina. And then the guy that freaks out in the middle of Iowa about Hurricane Katrina realizes, we don't get hurricanes in Iowa. What am I freaking out about this for? You know, so I said, a lot of these, or, or you know, there's going to be a solar flare. Some scientist comes out with a report and said there could be a huge ejectional mass of the sun on, 2000, you know, June something, 2009. Just making a date up there, folks. We go, oh, my God. Shut down the whole grid. What do I do? i got to get ready. So then I sat back and said, you know, that's exactly where I started out with this thing. i got to crystallize this. i got to figure out how to kill that one. That is the death sentence to the modern survivalist. That's what kills it. That acute fixation. How can I make sure that this thing is dead? Then I said, well, what disasters are most people likely to face at least several times in their lives? And I said, well, that's going to be job loss. Divorce, death of a spouse, death of a child, death of a close family member or friend that was part of a system of dependence, loss of their investments, wiped out in the stock market, have to keep working longer than they planned on, small weather events that destroy their house, flooding, these are the things that happen to people every day, and those could be called personal level disasters. And I said, they're the most probable event that anybody will have to ever deal with. And I said, well, if that's true, what's the next size of disaster? Will it be, you know, a neighborhood or small regional? And these are hurricanes. These are the bigger weather events. These are riots like L.A. The L.A. riots back in the 90s. Hurricane Katrina, yes. How about Hurricane Andrew in and Homestead Air Force Base? They did way more damage than Katrina. Katrina. But because people didn't go sit in the Superdome and refuse to leave when they were told to evacuate, it didn't make the news the way that Katrina did. Didn't make the sexy story, but did massive damage. Tropical storm that hit Jacksonville, Florida the year after Katrina put the whole city underwater and it flooded for days. Almost nobody even talked about it. These were these smaller regional disasters. More likely to happen than these national disasters, you know? And then the bigger the imprint of the disaster got, the lower the probability that you would have to deal with it was. In other words, it's much more probable that today, when you get to work, your boss is going to say, Jim, sorry, Uh, we have a round of layoffs and you got hit. You go home and your wife says, honey, we have to talk. I lost my job today. financial advisor calls you up and says your portfolio is wiped out. God forbid, I hate to say it, somebody you dearly love, you get a call from the police department killed in a car accident. All of those things are far more likely to happen than the climate shifting and going into a new little ice age, than a global war, than a total, complete um, collapse of the U.S. economy. All of those major events were less likely. So that became the disaster probability scale. And tied in with it was something that was just right there for anybody to see, but nobody ever talked about it. Disaster commonality. And I've now joined them to one plank in the platform because they're so joined, they have to be talked about together. And that was, if I did everything I could to prepare for... Those personal disasters and neighborhood disasters and small regional disasters, if the major big giant one ever hit, I was about as prepared as I could be. So we would start by preparing for personal disasters, preparing for job loss, having reserved cash, preparing to have, you know, the house blown down in a storm. Pragmatic things, insurance and what have you. We would start there, and we would work our way out the whole time we were doing it, we wouldn't say we're ignoring the potential for a solar flare, a climate shift, a global war, an economic collapse. We're preparing for those two. We're just starting at step one instead of trying to run to step 99 overnight. And if we keep following this formula, because disasters have a commonality across the board, in other words, if you get a small local storm, Your needs are very similar to the needs of the thousands and thousands of people that got hit by Hurricane Katrina. Now, the ability for people to help you is much higher because there's less damage. But if you're going to take care of yourself, your needs are identical. If you're prepared to deal with an ice storm in the winter, which is a common occurrence across most of the country, being without power, not being able to go to the store, all of those things... And then we have a major event. You're as prepared for that as you probably can be. Now, there's things you can do with the tweak along the way, but you follow that path. You follow that procedure. If you do that, you go a long way towards starving off even the biggest disaster. So disaster probability and disaster commonality. The next one, you have to produce some of your own energy. I don't care if it's a solar oven that cooks food. On some level, take control of your energy production little solar array, backup power source generator, I don't care what it is, you have to produce power. All this eco talk, and we're going to save the planet, and we're going to use windmills, and as long as somebody else produces the power and sends it to you, you're still trapped in the tax maze because the power is taxed during, after uh, and before creation. It's taxed when it's distributed. You have to work to pay for it. You're taxed when you work. You're taxed when you drive to work. You're taxed when you drive home. You're taxed when you stop and pick a six-pack of beer up on the way home. The guy that works on the windmill is taxed when he works on the windmill, when he buys a six-pack of beer, when he drives to work. Tax, 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 and we're still dependent on a distribution system. It doesn't matter if all our power is suddenly produced by windmills, tidal energy, geothermal... It doesn't matter. It's still being produced somewhere else. It's supposed to be transmitted to us. And there's still a potential for those systems to fail. So you have to take control of some of your own power production. You don't have to be off-grid tomorrow. But start down the path a little at a time. If you can get to a point where you can produce 50% of the power you use on day-to-day living in a crisis, you'll be just fine. You can live with half the power you normally consume. I'm not saying you should do it day-to-day. I'm saying if you have that ability, then the world can go to hell in a handbasket. And you'll have enough to do the things that are essential to live not just enough to survive, but live a reasonably comfortable existence. Even 25 Percent will do massive things to get most people toward that end. The next one. You have to have wealth. And to me, there's no greater wealth in this nation than the ability to own land. It's what brought people here in the first place. Land ownership. People don't realize that there's still a lot of countries in the world where you can't actually own land. You get a 100-year lease or a 50-year lease on land. The government owns the land. The people own the land for the collective good. It's called socialism. Most of the world is socialist. And it, long ago, and I mean 150 years ago, it was more the case that you couldn't own land in many nations. Many nations, the royalty owned the land. Commoners couldn't own land. People came to this country not for our flag, not for our Constitution. Those were nice to have. Those were icing on the cake. You know what brought people here? The ability to own land. The surf in Eastern Europe said if I go to America, I can work in a factory like a dog for two years, save up my money, live like a pauper, which I'm already doing. And instead of going out and being a a surf... I can go out and get 40 acres, and it's mine, and I can do whatever the hell I want to with it, and I own it, and I can produce with it, and the collective production is mine. I am out of here. I will sacrifice anything. I will give anything. That opportunity is pure gold. And we've lost that wisdom. We don't get it anymore. Folks, you've got to own land. I don't care if it's an acre. I don't care if it's a cardboard box on the street. you got to own something. I don't mean be in debt for it for the rest of your life. You've got to have a plan to eliminate the debt against it as quickly as possible, and you've got to own it outright. And you've got to look for ownership opportunities for land with low taxes, being consistent with the rest of the philosophy. But two, three acres of land that you turn into a producer, that's wealth. That's a tremendous amount of wealth that's being lost as people decide they want condominiums in trendy areas and to ride subway trains. That's not wealth. That's the middle of dependency. That's as bad as it gets. I don't care if you want to live in the city. Find yourself a piece of rural land three or four hours away. Figure out how to buy it. Make it into something that's special for you. Do it while you can. The most valuable commodity going into the next 40 years in this nation is going to be land. The government will nationalize the real estate industry 100%. Even though the biggest failures were Freddie and Fannie, they'll say those are the ones we could fix. We can't risk this again. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And the country may very well value its currency against land. The billionaires are buying land. George Soros, Jim Rogers, buying land. There's a reason. Get your peace while you can. Don't freak out and run out tomorrow and just like go nuts and buy something stupid because Jack said to buy land. But make a plan. Execute a plan to own a piece of real estate that's not in the middle of a city where you at least have room to breathe. Where when you spit out both windows of a house you build on it, you don't hit a house on both sides. Create something like that for yourself. Have pragma- pragmatic preparations. Life insurance. Health insurance. Savings accounts. If you have kids, no college funds. I learned that one the hard way. My kid's going to probably make it through college, but it may not have been the best decision for him. We put money into a college fund. We should have put money where it was accessible. This nonsense that every kid needs to go to college is nonsense. It really is. Some people aren't right for college. When you look at your baby and she's two years old, you think she's the most wonderful thing in the world. She always will be to you. But it doesn't mean she's going to be smart. Not book smart. Maybe she'll be an artesian. Maybe that little boy will will end up becoming one of the most incredible um, craftsmen in the world. But maybe college isn't the place for him. Maybe it's just not right for them. You don't know when they're three, four years old. So you put money away for them in a form where it can be used for whatever makes sense. Survivalists, though, folks, you have life insurance so you're not a survivalist. Especially if you have a family with children. If you don't have life insurance, you need to pick yourself up right now and go get some. And not one of these crazy investment schemes and universal whole life and all this crap. Solid term for at least until your children are old enough to take care of themselves. It's dirt cheap. And I've had people say, you're better off saving the money and having cash. Well, you're better off saving money and having cash, but not at the expense of having no life insurance. You should have about 10 times of your income in term life if you're the sole breadwinner. And for most American males, that's about $35 a month for 10 years. To make sure that your family's taken care of if anything goes wrong. And you can get it for less. And you don't have to carry ten times. You told me we're carrying five times and we're living a smart life and we're eliminating debt. And we're going to be, by the time I'm dead, you know, we're, unless something happens short term, we should be a lot longer. And, and we're comfortable with five times. I'm okay with that. If you're okay with three times, I'm okay with it. But carrying none is irresponsible. How can you call yourself a survivalist if you don't survive? It's going to compromise the survivability of your family. Because I don't care how tough you are, I don't care how many AR-15s you have, tomorrow morning you can walk out the door, bam, hit by a truck, you're dead. What does your family do? You know, the insurance industry, they say when you're trying to sell a guy insurance, back up the hearse and let him smell the flowers and the dirt. That's what I'm trying to do for you here you got to have the pragmatic things, too. So part of the philosophy was the pragmatic things that any good, solid financial advisor, if you can find one, because most of them suck, would tell you to do. 90-day emergency cash fund. Being able to get your hands on 90 days' worth of expenses in cash. Save that money up. Don't put all your money into, into retirement. One of the biggest lies the American people have ever been told, every surplus penny you can save... Put it into your 401k or IRA. Put it away for that retirement that a huge percentage of people never live to see. Pay hey, massive penalties if there's ever an emergency and you need it. I'm not saying retirement funds are bad ideas. 401Ks are bad ideas. IRAs are bad ideas. They're great. It's just not where all your money goes. Put 10, 15% of your money in it. If you're saving 15% of your money, put 7 away for your long-term retirement. 8, take the balance, put it into cash equivalencies. It could be the same form of investment. Same allocation. If you do stocks, funds, metals, however you allocate, cash CDs. You can allocate the exact same way. Just don't put it all in tax-deferred, because you might need it tomorrow. And if you need it tomorrow and it's a 401k, you're going to end up losing half of it just to get your hands on your own money, because our government has set up a scam called income tax to use as as a club to force money to stay in the market. That's what retirement funds are. They are a scam to keep money in the market, to keep continuous upward pressure, and make a pyramid scheme out of the stock market. That's what it is. So be pragmatic and understand that if you put everything in one place, that's a bad idea. You're not diversified because you have a good portfolio of assets that are all in one type of investment vehicle, let's say a 401k. That's not diversification. I don't care how diversified inside it it is, it's still in one place. So be diversified with your investments. Carry good insurance. Have practical, pragmatic planning. Have plans. Have documentation in place. All the things that a good lawyer, and financial advisor would tell you to do, and a good insurance agent, if you can find those last two, let me know. Do those two. And then the last one, the most important one, I would have to tell people from day one... This information is for you to use as you see fit. I will tell you what I know to be true. I will tell you what I've done. I will tell you what I what's worked for me. I will tell you what's failed for me. I'll tell you where I've gotten it right. I'll tell you where I've screwed up. I'll tell you what I believe and why I believe, it. I will challenge you in all walks of life, not just prepping, in economics, in politics, in philosophy, in spirituality, believe whatever you want, but by God, know why you believe what you believe. And the only thing that could be consistent with that would be for me to tell you that your survival plan, your disaster plan, your life plan must be one you own. It must be yours. You must possess it, you must write it, you must own it, and if you disagree vehemently with something I say, they take all the things that you do agree with, figure out how to justify them against what you disagree with, and build your plan your way. I tell you credit cards are evil in the devil, and I mean that, and God forbid, I don't think you should own one, I think you should get rid of them. There's no good that can come from them, points, rebates are all crap. You don't believe that? Fine. Then don't carry debt with your credit card. Use it for the Bullshit excuse that you give me. Fine. Make it work in your life. Don't look for me to bless it, but it's okay for you because it's your plan. And it's like that with everything. I tell you store at least six months of food, you say 60 days is enough, fine. I tell you produce your own food with a garden and trees and and, and everything, and you say three containers of lettuce is good enough, fine. It's got to be yours. I tell you to pay off all your debt as quickly as you can, you write a plan that takes 12 years and you decide you're okay with that, but you're not going to go any deeper, fine. I sure wish you wouldn't do things quite that way, but you got to do it your way. you got to own it. So the, the binding principle that wraps it all up, you create your plan. You create your disaster plan, your survival plan, your documentation package. You create everything in the way that makes most sense for you and your life. You have complete and total ownership of that. Because if you follow my plan to the letter, the first time it gets tough, you'll fall out. You'll quit. If it's not yours, you don't own it, you don't believe in it. If it's yours, if you created it, you have complete faith in it because it comes from you. It comes from within. And because of that, you adapt, you improvise, you overcome, and you continue. And I believe if we all do that, we all have different ways we explain it, different angles, different takes, but we're all going to end up pretty much in the same place. We're going to end up in a place where if something goes wrong, we're going to be okay. That's all I can ask for. So that was the the summing up total principle that I came up with. You must own your own plan. Your plan is far more important than my plan. How much food I store doesn't matter. How much food you're comfortable storing and not storing, that's what matters. Whether or not I believe in, in defense with a firearm is not as important as whether or not you believe in defense with a firearm. I certainly do. I hope you do too. But if you tell me I'm not comfortable with that, fine. You're not comfortable with that. Um. That is absolutely critical. And that's it. Ten principles that define modern survivalism. Two more are coming with my book when I finally put it out. But those were the initial ten, the guiding ten, the things that you can do and start doing right now that will change the way you view life, the way you plan for life, the way you deal with situations that make you more safe and more secure, as long as you make them your own. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. I want to remind you real quick, vote for us in the podcast awards. Make sure you go by thesurvivalpodcast.com. Don't just listen to the podcast because I always put resources and additional things for you. Get involved with the forum. Check out our gear shop. We have great stuff there. But all in all, just make sure that you're taking advantage of everything that we provide. I'm working really hard, guys. I'm going to go full-time with this thing in January. It's because of folks like you that I'm able to do it. I thank you so much for that. But make sure you take advantage of everything that's out there for you, both from us, from other great communities, from other great websites, from other great people. Reach out into your community. Live the better life. And when people ask me, what is the best way I can get people to listen to me when I want to tell them about modern survivalism, it's the best way that you can do it for anything. Be the example. When you live life confidently, when you live life as an example of what can be, you attract people. People eventually say, what are you taking? What are you on? How are you able to do this in your life? Some small disaster occurs and they're around and you coast through it and it's a tragedy for them. That'll catch their attention. People come to these things in their own time. Be the example. This is been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. You can scream. You can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent